Give me a go, no go for launch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was gonna say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. Let's make film history. We are go for launch. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Almost Sideways podcast. Uh, so glad that you are listening with us. If you're finding us on iTunes, make sure that you uh, subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, that way we can be uh, we can be heard by more people. Uh, I am your host, Terry Plucknett. As always, I am joined by Todd Plucknett and Zach Saltz. How is it going, guys? It's going epic, Terry. Epic. That is living the dream. Living the dream. Todd, how's uh, how's Snowmageddon going in uh, in the greater Seattle area? Uh, it sucks. I have a space heater less than two feet from my uh, side right now, so <laughs> keeping warm any way possible. Uh, all right. Well, uh, to start off our podcast today, this is our first podcast since the Oscar nominations were announced. And we're going to do a special Oscars podcast coming up. But one thing I wanted to remind everyone of is our annual Almost Sideways Oscar Challenge. Uh, make sure you can find uh, on Facebook, on Twitter, or on almostsideways.com the link to our, uh, our annual event uh, where you try and pick the winners and see if you can best us. I don't think any of us won last year. So we got to step up our game and try and, uh, and try and win. We're picking all the winners of all the categories and now that uh, the last precursor the BAFTAs were uh, were announced today we're recording Sunday night uh, we can really have a good picture of what's gonna happen in a couple weeks uh, so Todd why don't you go over the uh, the eight films nominated for best picture in this little activity that we're going to be doing to start us off today okay well uh, the nominees were Bohemian Rhapsody, Black Klansman, A Star is Born, The Favorite, Green Book, Roma, Black Panther, and Vice. And usually, especially since they expand the category, there's only one time when uh, there's been a, a director nomination that wasn't nominated for picture, that was Foxcatcher. Uh, there is one of those this year, so Cold War got a director nomination, so that makes... Uh, uh, the the picture of best picture a little bit murkier I think out of nowhere too yes so uh, what's interesting though is if there were five nominees I think that uh, I, I think there definitely would have been Black Klansman and there definitely would have been Roma and aside from that like I think the favorite right now is Green Book not the favorite and uh I think A Star Is Born still would have been nominated because both those movies had sort of like weird things against them. Like A Star Is Born was directed by an actor, sort of like Argo, so they just didn't really give it the director nomination. And Green Book, uh, the director had controversy. And I think the other nominee would be Bohemian Rhapsody, whose director also had some controversy, which would leave three directors who had their movies not nominated for Best Picture, got nominated for Best Director, one of which would be Vice, which would be completely absurd because that is not an achievement in directing at all and doesn't fit the profile in, in any way. So what are you saying Are your, would be your five, if there were five? I think it would be Bohemian Rhapsody, Black Klansman, A Star is Born, Roma, and Green Book. Interesting. So no Black, no Black Panther, no Favorite, and no Vice. Yes. Hmm. Zach, what do you think? 
Uh, well, I would agree with Todd. I, I don't think Black Panther would make the top five. I don't think Black Klansman would either, be, because by virtue of, even though it's been nominated for several precursor awards, it was released earlier in the summer, and I think older, uh, I guess older style voters would have forgotten about it. And I also think that uh, A Star is Born wouldn't get the nomination either. So my five would be Bohemian Rhapsody, Green Book, Roma, The Favorite, and Vice. Yeah, I, I'm... I'm kind of in between the two of you. I'm thinking uh, right along what, what Zach said, except instead of Vice, I would put Black Klansman. So I would have I would have Green Book, Roma, The Favorite, uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, and Black Klansman. That would be my five. Fair. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, that's that, that's if Oscar voters <laughs> actually would value better a rev- better reviewed film over recency bias. So, so you think Vice would be one of those movies that would have a director nomination without a picture nomination? Because those are rare, and they're always to like visually interesting movies like Mulholland Drive or United Ninety Three or something like that. But Vice, you think Vice would actually? I mean, I th- I think that actually would happen too. That nomination makes no sense to me. Yeah, it's it's one of those that uh, it almost feels like that directing nomination came about because they knew it would be nominated for best picture i honestly don't know if the if it was a narrow five film picture race i don't think vice would have been a contender which i think would have meant adam mckay wouldn't have been a contender if that makes any sense well they certainly weren't going to nominate peter Farrelly, and uh they certainly weren't going to nominate uh brian singer so I feel like a lot of people didn't see Vice. They probably got the screener but never actually watched it and just assumed it was a good movie. That's that's my explanation for McKay's nomination. Well, but I mean, but the directors nominate the directors. It's not the entire body, so they, they wouldn't have had that collective, like, you know, the group think that Terry's describing. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. You're right, though. But it me- doesn't quite make sense. But McKay, um, that this—that's the whole reason I wanted to talk about this because it doesn't. Yeah, that, like I—I I don't understand how Vice gets a director nomination because I don't think it's one of the five moves that would have been nominated. People didn't see it; they just got the screener. No, they, they I thought think Christian saw Bale. It. No, they saw they, it. They, they, they kept the screener. You know, they maybe watched the first five minutes and said, "Hey, here's an Oscar film," without actually watching it. And if they—if they had watched it, they would have seen um, a pretty disastrous. Uh, epic flop as as we've gone over in this podcast a few times i really liked vice it did make one of our top 10 lists that's true it didn't make my <laughs> top gonna... 10 it didn't make oh, my well, top 10 but i, I did was... really like it okay not gonna single anyone out on this podcast who may have liked it but... <laughs> so you guys think that a star is born would have been like this year's doubt or something where you've got all the acting nominations the screenplay nomination but no picture exactly that's a great comparison i think i, I think brad 100 agree i think bradley cooper's snub for director really shows that it that it was a film that was forgotten about when it came down to it and other than the yeah other than those acting nominations yeah i think well, it remember been argo forgotten. only had like four nominations total and one best picture yeah, but we're talking about that five-picture system, and... Argo wasn't part of that. I know, but if we were in the five-picture system, I don't know. So you don't think Argo would have been one of the top five? It I guess it's possible. It's possible. You'd that, have that, to go back to that year. That's interesting to think about, that a winner would have missed the top five. Just because the preferential voting system is all... kind of screws everything up. Yeah. I think the Powell Palakowski nomination basically says that 
it's a weak crop of films that are nominated for Best Picture, except for maybe one or two that we'll go into more detail in the next podcast. And they don't really have a lot of faith in any of these films. It's possible. Yeah, I, I it, it almost feels like the race is wide open because nothing is nothing is great. Well, you had you had your number one movie of the year uh, nominated for best True. picture, but it's a black and white foreign film. I, I mean, if if Roma wasn't a black and white foreign film, I think it would be running away with this race. But the other thing that that we've noticed is in this new voting system, nothing has run away with the race. Nothing has been the the lock for winning um, going into Oscar night like it had been before. Uh, you could make the case that last year The Shape of Water was a pretty clear favorite, and I think it did pretty well. Uh, it it, yeah, it was pretty much steamrolled. It, through. it did, but go, well, going into the night, there was still some there was still some doubt. I mean, it was it was somewhat of a favorite, but there were a couple of films in there that that uh, could have easily upset it, and it you wouldn't know, have been a surprise. It's not like anyone put out a podcast that was possibly recorded in Vegas and stupidly predicted that, like, Lady Bird would win. I mean, that didn't happen, right? No one was predicting that. <laughs> Nobody was predicting that. Nobody. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, this is a little preview of our next podcast as we really dive into, uh, dive into this Oscar race. And uh, we'll look at some of the major categories and look at who, uh, who will win, who should win, who should have been nominated. That wasn't. And uh, we'll be looking at that next time. But now uh, we're going to be getting into some uh, some more recent movies. But first, and most importantly, Todd, what are you drinking? Uh, I'm drinking a uh, Scotch Martini, better known by the name Rob Roy, nominated for Best Sport <coughs> after 1995. Yes, well done. Well done. Mm-hmm. Something to keep you warm at least, right? Yes. All right. Zach, what do you got? I have a Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, and I'm almost done with my first bottle, and I have another one uh, waiting for me. <laughs> uh, we're gonna have because God gonna, knows we're gonna go for several hours on this podcast. We're gonna need it. We're gonna have fun, Zach. By the end of this thing, this is good. All right. So uh, for me, uh, I, this this choice is inspired, C- considering the the current weather in across the United States. I have from Rogue Brewing Company out of Newport, Oregon. Their winter pilsner entitled Yellow Snow. So I really thought you were gonna say burr. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's 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 their yellow snow, and it's actually really good too. It's a it's a really smooth, uh, soft taste uh, to this uh, to this pilsner. I'm I'm really liking it. So, Why don't we get paid sponsorships for this? For I this know. Podcast? I, I mean, know. You sound like one of those guys, Terry. Rogue Brewing. I am one of those guys. Find it at a store near you. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> Ten minutes into the podcast, and we have a, uh, a sideways reference. It, 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 it always has to sneak its way in there. All right. Well, before we get into our movie reviews, we have one last thing that we're going to do. Uh, I, uh, I put up on Twitter a day or two ago uh, an ask for some fan questions for our, uh, for our podcast we were going to answer on, uh, on our recording. Uh, if you want to do it for next time, just uh, tweet the question with the hashtag AskAlmostSideways, and uh, and we'll look at it and find it on uh, on our 
on there and we'll answer it on our podcast and we had we had one question come in this time uh and it's from our uh our good friend and uh almost sideways contributor adam daly of the red and brown podcast and adam daly live check out adam daily live on youtube red and brown on itunes or wherever you find your podcasts uh and the question i thought was a pretty brilliant question and it was if they were to make an almost sideways movie who would be cast in the four leads and i'll answer first because i've been thinking about this for a little while and and the funny thing is as i was thinking about it i i stopped thinking of of actors for some reason and for whatever reason i went with an all quarterback class of uh Ooh, of nice. who would uh of who would be cast in uh, the almost sideways movie um uh for myself i i would go with sam darnold uh, i've been told by several people i look like sam darnold um zach would obviously be joe flacco um todd would be brian hoyer and the most obvious of them all is Adam Daly would be Andy Dalton because I'm pretty oh, sure Adam Daly is Andy Dalton. We just don't know it. I feel like Todd would be circa 2004 Matt Hasselback. That's not bad either. That's not bad either. <laughs> nice. <laughs> what do you guys think? Who would play us in a movie? Well, uh, go ahead, Todd. Matt. <laughs> Well, I don't know. For me, I, I've always I, I've been told recently a lot that I look like the guy from uh, Gotham and Barry. His name's Anthony Kerrigan, so I guess I'll go with that. Uh, Terry has I've always thought looked like a young Ethan Hawke. Uh, Zach is obviously Sean Hattesey, and Adam, absolutely no question, would be played by Jesse Plemons. <laughs> <coughs> I, I still I I don't see the Ethan Hawke thing. I, I've been told that yeah, by many people, but I I don't see it. Zach, what do you got? All right, well, Terry would be played by our friend Nathan Betterman. No, actually, that's not true. <laughs> that was an inside joke. When I first met Terry, I sometimes confused him with uh, another guy at our school, Nathan Betterman. If you're listening, shout out to Nate, Nathan Betterman. Um, I actually would go with Glenn Hansard, but for looks and for seeing ability. Um, for Todd, I would go Ben Foster. Uh, for me, I would say Adam Sandler, and for many years I had Adam Sandler from Punch Drunk Love as my profile picture. And you really and, couldn't uh, tell which one was which? No, no, you really couldn't. And then uh, for Adam, uh, there's no one else but Jesse Plemons. I mean, it's, it's a futile contest, <laughs> except for possibly Andy Dalton. You really did make me think, Terry, maybe maybe Andy Dalton's the better pick. Yeah, and that that's really what started, is, is whenever I think Adam, I think Andy Dalton, and then... And then I just started thinking through, and and yeah, I, I yeah, yeah. That that that'd be a fun. That's a fun one. That's a fun one. Who would direct the movie? Oh, who would direct the movie? Um, I thought I, I, Zach was gonna say that I should be put by Todd Luiso because he <laughs> oh, said that. That's a good one. Yeah, I changed my vote. Todd Luiso. <laughs> Shout out to Todd Luiso wherever he is. <laughs> Uh yes yes I that's one I never got but uh, apparently yeah Todd looks like him all right well now that that uh, that little exercise is over with uh, let's hop into movie reviews I love this movie so much I did not really like this film at all this is the most Zach movie ever made you gotta see it movie reviews 
so usually on our podcast we uh we pick a film and we all see it and we uh talk about it and really go into a deep dive on it but seeing as we're in like early to mid-february we're a month and a half into 2019 uh not many great things are out at the box office right now that aren't uh 2018 films that are being pushed for an oscar uh Oscar push. There's a few good ones coming out this weekend. You had a uh, Lego Movie Two come out. You had, you've had uh, Glass dominating the box office for the last three or four weeks. But what we decided to do is uh, one of the spots that we see a lot of great movies now is on Netflix and Netflix original films. Uh, we were talking about Roma earlier. Roma nominated for Best Picture as a Netflix original film. And so we decided to each take one of these uh, Netflix originals that have come out in the last two or three weeks and do a review of it on here. Uh, each one kind of, I think, fits, fits our tastes a little bit as well uh, that we picked, and you'll, you'll see what, uh, what I mean. So let's start. Uh, Zach, why don't you get, start us off with the uh, Netflix movie you watched and what you thought of it? All right, well, the film I selected was Velvet Buzzsaw, the latest film by Dan Gilroy. And if you know Dan Gilroy, he's, this is his third film. He also made Nightcrawler, and, which I really liked. It was actually on my top ten list of 2014. And Roman J. Esquire, Israel Esquire, which I don't think anyone actually saw. Did you see it, Todd? Yeah, it's, it's really bad. Okay, um, just putting that out there. It was one of those strange Oscar nominations that was sort of inexplicable, but... Anyway, uh, Dan Gilroy is back, and uh, this is uh, his third movie, and this is a movie that is completely unlike the previous two, uh, or at least the world in which it's set is very much unlike it, and it is set in the world of art, uh, and sort of high-class elite art galleries and art shows in the Los Angeles area. And it stars Jake Gyllenhaal as an art critic by the name of Morf Vandervault. And one of the reasons that I was first attracted to this film is that, uh, I'm going to do a humble brag here, my uncle Jerry, uh, Jerry Saltz, is an uh, art critic uh, for New York Magazine. And uh, he, he did a humble brag sort of Instagram post about how Jake Gyllenhaal uh, told, uh, apparently modeled the performance after in this film after My Uncle Jerry, which was kind of interesting. Um, after having watched the film, I really don't think there are a lot of parallels besides the fact that they're both art critics. <laughs> However, if we're talking about casting people as, or in, uh, casting actors as people we know, what's ironic is that um, I always thought My Uncle Jerry would be played in a movie by John Malkovich, who's actually in this movie. Um, but anyway, that's just sort of a side note. Um, this is a sort of a strange movie. It starts out as sort of this satirical, edgy look with an all-star cast at this, you know, this culture of um, elite high art, high concept art, uh, sort of abstract avant-garde art, and um, it sort of mercilessly uh, makes fun of this world. It's definitely a satire. And the first hour of this film really feels like if Robert Altman was still alive, if he had made a film about uh, the art world, uh, which he didn't, but he probably should have. Um, I don't think this film is quite as funny as Altman could have made would have made this film uh, uh, or this this concept but it does kind of have an easy target um, these people all have kind of ridiculous names and they have ridiculous sort of personalities and then um, the, the as the story goes along um, it actually sort of does a 180 midway through and it sort of turns into a slasher uh, killer film um, 
as the characters find this art that has been done by this guy who uh, was killed, um, and uh, they sort of put on, they, they find that it's incredible art, it's beautiful art, and then they put on a show, an exhibition of this guy's art, and then it, the art kind of comes to life and actually starts uh, killing people as it goes along. So it's this sort of strange blend of like Robert Altman's social satire, but then also like Wes Craven like slasher movie. Um, so it's a very sort of high concept. Um, the, whether you like this movie or not totally depends on if you're in the mood for something like this. Um, I, it's really hard to take this movie seriously. Uh, it's just outrageous. I mean, the violence is sort of over the top, and there are some really kind of funny sequences. Like, there's one sequence where a woman's arm is chopped off, and it's in the art gallery, and uh, it's revealed that uh, she no one discovered that she was murdered because everyone thought it was part of the art piece. Like, like there were kids that were just, like, running around with, like, her arm in the blood. Like, stuff like that's really funny and that's when this movie works is when it's sort of a, uh, a biting satire although I'm not really sure uh, if the art world is the most sophisticated target of satire I mean, it sort of has some easy shots uh so, um, I don't know. I've, I found myself mostly in the mood. The characters are, like I said, over the top and ridiculous. The performances are uh, exaggerated. Um, and the plot's just silly and stupid. But uh, I was long for the ride most of the time. Um, this is certainly not the same quality that Nightcrawler is. I mean, Nightcrawler made some really powerful statements about the media and the television news industry. This movie doesn't quite have the same level of um, motivation or it doesn't try to attain the same kind of things that Nightcrawler did um, so you have to go into it with with that sort of mindset but it was a fun sort of journey ridiculous but at the same time kind of interesting uh, over the top uh, <coughs> and uh, I don't know not not terrible um, but not quite the movie you would have hoped for coming from the same guy and the same cast uh, in large part that did a movie like uh, Nightcrawler so for me this is a tepid two and a half star film all right I have not seen it yet it's one that uh that definitely looks interesting, and I want to catch it at some point. Todd, have you seen uh, Velvet Buzzsaw yet? Yeah, I did. I, I liked it probably a little less than Zach. I actually fell asleep twice during it, so <laughs> I, it's kind of hard to give a good review of it. But yeah, I, yeah, I give it two stars. All right, all right. Well, uh, Todd, why don't you uh, let us uh, in on the film that you watched uh, that you're reviewing? Okay, I chose uh, High Flying Bird, which is a new movie by Steven Soderbergh. Uh, it's the second consecutive year that he had a movie that he directed on an iPhone, and you can't really tell from the quality of it. Uh, he uses, like, wide-angle lenses and other camera gimmicks to make it really look believable and like a fly-on-the-wall kind of experience. Uh, it's not playing in theaters, which so it's technically a TV movie, so me predicting it for Oscar contention is completely obsolete at this point, but it should be up for some Emmys, I would think. Uh, the movie is set in the nightmare situation for a sports fan, which is a lockout. Uh, the number one overall pick in the unnamed NBA is uh, Eric Scott, who's played by Melvin Gregg, who you might recognize as uh, DeMarcus from uh, American Vandal Season 2. No, nice. Uh, he is represented by this savvy sports agent named Ray Burke, who's played by Andre Holland. Uh, Ray is the center of the story, and you get to see his schemes and maneuvers firsthand, and and how powerful, influential even an agent could be when the uh, state of the sport is at stake. Uh, he devises this plan to get the power of the league back in the hands of the players and away from the the owners. Uh, one of the owners is played by Kyle McLaughlin, and like just excellent disdain. He's he's really good in that role. 
Uh, Eric is in sort of a bad spot because his agent really isn't paying a whole lot of attention to him because he's t- taking matters into his own hands. He kind of negligently signed this bad loan uh, you know, just to get some money uh, while the lockout's going on. Uh, he really wants to just get back in the game, but Ray is more looking to change the game. Uh, the movie is written by uh, Terrell Alvin McCraney, who uh, won an Oscar as the co-writer of Moonlight. Uh, it's really interesting and witty movie. It's almost like Margin Call. It's like a series of meetings and conversations in a small amount of time that really makes up the the entire movie. And Soderbergh handles. There's a lot of twists, and he handles it pretty much with ease. He's he's really good at this kind of thing. Even though this type of material isn't really something that you would think he would need to leave his stamp on, but he does. I have a I have a few quibbles with how it actually plays out, but everything that happens is logical for the most part and riveting. Uh, Bill Duke is also in it. He plays Ray's mentor, and he explains how the owners created a game within a game, uh, and when the league integrated, when the players pretty much gave up their power for money to be part of the league. Zazie Beetz is also in it, Zachary Quinto, and Sonia Sohn from The Wire. Uh, it's an interesting movie, and I find it crazy how Soderbergh can continually just, like, uh, shift genres and push boundaries of what is film and what isn't film. He can retire all the uh, as much as he wants. He just needs to keep unretiring. <coughs> I, I don't think the movie is really going to light up Netflix's numbers or anything. It's, it's not really a sports movie. It's more about the business of sports. Jerry Maguire and He Got Game sort of are inspirations for the movie, but his closest relative is definitely Moneyball. I... It could have been a Sorkin movie, now that I think about it. Uh, it's definitely worth the 90 minutes on Netflix. I give it three stars. All right. All right. Zach, have you seen that one? No, I haven't, but uh, I definitely want to watch it now. And um, I think Soderbergh is so great at just, like you said, Todd, totally shifting expectations. He never makes the same movie twice. And uh, I didn't know that he shot this on an iPhone. I was a really big fan of his previous film, Unsane, which was also shot on an iPhone. Right. So I always love how he's continually, uh, you know, pushing the boundaries of not just different content, but also different filmmaking aesthetics and methods. Yeah, he's always trying new things, which is which is always cool. I have not seen that one either. That's another one I want to catch at some point. All right. So now to my film. The movie I watched that is a Netflix original is called Polar. Uh, it stars uh, Mods Mikkelsen and was written and directed by Jonas Ackerland, who uh, is actually more known for directing music videos. And uh, this is uh, one of his uh, few uh, forays into feature filmmaking in the last couple years. Uh, it is my first film, uh, 2019 film that I've watched, and it will most likely go down as the worst 2019 Ooh. film I've watched. Uh, it's so... I was curious and I was interested in it because anything Mods Mickelson does is interesting because he is such an amazing actor from anything from, I mean, if you were a fan of Hannibal to uh, you've got The Hunt and you've got uh, even back to like Casino Royale, he, he is always fascinating to watch and he is by far the best part of this movie and he, you, you constantly ask yourself, why did you agree to do this? Uh, Mods Mickelson plays a hitman named Duncan Visla, who is uh, about to retire. He's two weeks away from retiring, and he works for uh, works for a a hitman company. And um, 
the uh, the Hitman Company is under new ownership, and they have decided the new owner has decided that he's going to save some money by uh, going around and killing all of his hitman, putting a hit on his own hitman right before retirement, so he doesn't have to pay their pensions. And uh, you get this whole team of hitmen going after Duncan who is the best of all the hitmen and just wants to retire and be left alone. And they refuse to let him do that. Uh, like I said, Mods Mickelson is, uh, is decent in it, as he always is. Uh, as he's going along, he meets uh, a girl named Camille, uh, played by Vanessa Hudgens, who he kind of takes under his wing and um, uh, kind of becomes a, a father figure almost to... Uh, the Outside of the two of them, the acting is absolutely horrendous. Um, Matt Lucas, who plays the owner of this uh, hit hitman company, is ridiculously awful. And I, I, it was some of the dialogue with some of these terrible acting performances almost felt like Tommy Wiseau was making a hitman film. It was it was just horribly bad. Um, the action scenes were okay, but you really didn't care about them because you knew exactly what was going to happen because it was such a predictable plot line to begin with. Um, yeah, I I was just... I, I was bummed that I wasted my time watching this instead of the movies that you guys watched which sounded like were actually halfway decent, but I'm giving this movie a half star, and that's just because Mods Mickelson was in it. He's the only thing that makes it even somewhat redeemable. Um, but yeah, stay away from Polar. It's not a good movie. Okay, but you say it sounds like possibly if Tommy Wiseau had made a, hit, a Hitman film. I mean, that sounds like entertaining if that's the kind of thing you're looking if for. It's a, so. I guess if it's the kind of thing you're looking for. And it is based on a graphic novel, so I guess maybe some fans of the of the graphic novel might might see this a little differently. But, I mean, it was... It was bad and it wasn't even like laughably bad it was just bad just, uh no no i i don't even yeah i don't know what mods mickelson was thinking uh it just i yeah it was like maybe he just won the Straight paycheck but, yeah but it's a net it's a made for netflix movie i mean it's not even it's, it, this isn't. That's why I was like, okay, this is this tiny movie coming onto Netflix without much fanfare. I mean, this is going to be something that uh, that he uh, that might be halfway decent because he's in it. And no, not at all, not at all. Yeah, I'd never even heard of it before. You yeah. said you were going to. And for it, some so. reason, Richard Dreyfus is in it too. He's in it for like five minutes. <laughs> yeah, that that there are three actors you've heard of in this movie: Mods Mikkelsen, Vanessa Hudgens. And five minutes of Richard Dreyfus, who is, I mean, this is like his second Netflix movie in six weeks, so, which, which is weird, because he hasn't made a movie in, what, like five years? But yeah, this is, the half-star movie, I was looking at it, it's the lowest rated movie I've, I've watched in 12 years. You gotta go wow. back to, like, Mr. Brooks' territory Jeez. in 2007 to get a film that I rated worse than Polar, so, yeah, well, that makes me want to see it, though. If you want, to, if you want to check it out, don't and and go into it without high expectations. You might appreciate it, but I, when Mods Mickelson's involved, I have much higher expectations than this. And it was, it was bad, and it was, it was, 
graphically violent for the sake of being violent trying to be comically violent and it didn't work it, yeah i mean yeah if you if it sounds interesting to you go for it if you want to have a time watching uh, this horrible movie go for it but no it was not good so well there you go two-thirds of the movies we watched were were decent and uh I think that Netflix, one thing that Netflix is really going to struggle with as it becomes more and more legitimate, um, in part due to Roma and others, but, you know, as I was watching um, Velvet Buzzsaw, I was always aware that it was a Netflix movie. I mean, I just knew it. The aesthetic was really kind of obvious, and, you know, maybe it was just reinforced because I was watching it on my TV, but I never for a second really thought that it was like a theatrical experience. Did you have the same sort of reactions to your films? Um, not necessarily. Yeah, I could have I could have seen this being a being a theatrical release. I think there I think there's also a difference between the movies that are Netflix originals that they fund and the movies they go out and buy. Like Roma was a done product that they went out and purchased right. the distribution rights for. So right, I, that's a good distinction. I think there is a difference there. Yeah, I I don't know. I'm just kind of tired of the Netflix aesthetic because I think there is one and I just I, I kind of hate it like if it, it looks vaguely like sort of a lower rent David Fincher style um, of just really crisp obviously digital uh, filmmaking and uh, it just kind of looks like a high-end TV show and it kind of lacks that sort of theatrical you know 35 millimeter kind of look and I don't know maybe I'm just sounding like a pretentious fop but I don't know I, I kind of I, I can tell when I'm watching something that's for Netflix versus something that's more theatrical and you're right that Roma was very clearly theatrical but I don't know I just feel like the Netflix look is irritating I, I can see that I can see, it, it definitely can have that that made for TV uh, feel to it um, I don't think mine had that it definitely tried for the scope of being uh of being a little bigger than that oh by the way i forgot there's also a two-minute cameo from johnny knoxville another one you haven't heard from in a while um but uh but like i would say a perfect example of what you're saying is like the christmas chronicles that definitely had the look of a made for tv movie i felt like it was a hallmark movie with, right. with special effects um so yeah i there's something to that but um uh, as long as they keep coming out with some pretty decent stuff and some quality stuff and get the distribution rights to to some big films like Roma, uh, it's going to stay legitimate. All right. Well, let's move on from our movie reviews and hop into our Spotlight segment. Spotlight. Uh, Todd, why don't you tell us what we're doing for our Spotlight segment? Because this is this was kind of a fun exercise here. Uh, so we are going to do one of our favorite things, which is recasting an older movie, and we chose Pulp Fiction, because it is now 2019, as ridiculous as that is. We are 25 years since the release of Pulp Fiction, Quentin Tarantino's masterpiece. So... That's insane. This should be interesting. There's like a hundred characters in this movie that could be recast, because they're all interesting characters, so... We chose a good, what, six or seven? I think we've got six that we're all going to recast, and then uh, then we have some that some favorites we wanted to throw out there, too. All right. So, Todd, why don't you start us off, then? Uh, writer, director, who would be helming 
Pulp Fiction. All right, so this needs to be somebody who has a lot of balls and uh, who is a young talent who's ready for his first big uh, monster hit, and he's also got to be able to play Jimmy. So <laughs> I went with an interesting, an interesting director, uh, and I went with Donald Glover because I could see him being Jimmy, and he also really has a way with language and tone. And I think that that would uh, definitely give an interesting flair to uh, my remake of Pulp Fiction. So writer-director Donald Glover, huh? And Jimmy. And and Jimmy. Writer-director Jimmy as Donald Glover. Okay. Zach, what do you got? Yeah, I mean, along similar lines, it's got to be someone who's ballsy enough to actually say, like, this movie could be remade. Because this is probably one of the top 10 or 20 movies that really could not be remade realistically. It could just never happen. So we're dealing entirely in hypotheticals, but someone with the balls and gravitas to actually suggest that it could be remade. And it has to be someone with some sort of theatrical experience being in front of the camera. So I was sort of thinking along similar lines with Todd, but someone who's definitely from a newer, edgier generation, certainly from the YouTube generation. And the first person I thought of was Bo Burnham experience nice. in front of maybe not the camera maybe more so like the uh you know camera from your macbook for, or for, on your phone but uh he I, I, he could pull it off especially as jimmy more so than donald glover give me a break donald glover could i could jimmy, totally see but... bo burnham as jimmy <laughs> yeah i writer director for this i struggled with more than anything else because i think and we talked about it on the podcast before. I think Tarantino has really created a genre of himself. Like, you know, there's action movies, there's dramas, there's comedies, there's romance movies. And then there's Tarantino movies. Then they, they don't really have a genre other than they're a Tarantino movie. And to try and get somebody else to be in, to, to make a Tarantino film, uh, it it doesn't it doesn't work so i i would almost and especially since he's still working i mean <laughs> i i i i would almost say i'd want tarantino to write the the remake and and uh have have a young director come along and and take it on um like a maybe like an alex garland or something like that some one of these young up and coming directors that could uh that could do something with it but yeah this is this is a spot where I don't really have a firm answer yet. Maybe I'll come up with one as we go go about what we're doing. But uh, but yeah, I I'm going with Tarantino write the remake, and directing it. I'm not sure yet. So just like treat it as like Shakespeare or something, so they don't change the the screenplay at all. Just exactly <laughs> someone exactly else is just someone <laughs> else make the exact same screenplay. But think about all those Tarantino wannabes from the late 90s. I mean, so many people wanted to be like him, and they made films like him. I mean, like Guy Ritchie, for example, you know? Or, uh, you know, I, I feel like there's a lot of people that modeled their cinematic influence off Tarantino, so... Well, even Roger Avery, I mean, he co-wrote the, the screenplay and supposedly wrote, like, a lot of it. So, I mean, yeah. it's not impossible to be Tarantino. I guess. Okay, well, let's get into the cast a little bit here. Uh, let's start with, um, Mr. Vincent Vega. That was, uh, originally brought to us by John Travolta in an Oscar-nominated role. Uh, Todd, who would be your new Vincent? Okay, well, for Vincent, it's not exactly that difficult of a role to recast, I don't think. Uh, 
he pretty much, I mean, he just has to pretend that he's on heroin all the time. He has to flip out a couple of times and pretty much lurk around the screen. But uh, the demeanor that Travolta has, I, I just cannot get Jonah Hill out of my head. So I went with him. He could really do anything. And it wouldn't be all that hard for him to do other than dance. So I think, but I think Jonah Hill definitely is the star of this movie. Okay. I think that's ridiculous. I don't like that casting. At I all. don't really like it either. <laughs> I think there's what? something there's something sexy and mysterious about Vincent Vega. You know, like, and he's obviously an Elvis man, and like he's been around the world. There's something worldly about him. There's nothing worldly about Jonah Hill. I mean, come on, that's <laughs> uh, you're missing out. All right, Zach. Well, who do you have? All right, well, going off that, someone who's worldly, someone who's sophisticated, someone who knows the difference between a uh, quarter pounder and a Royale with cheese, and uh, that person to me is someone who uh, we've seen in a few movies recently, we've mentioned a movie that he was in on this podcast, and uh, on this episode, and that is uh, David Diggs, who was in uh, Velvet Buzzsaw, along with uh, starring in Blindspotting, which was a film on Todd's top ten list. Um, I think he projects uh, charisma, he's fascinating, he projects a sort of worldly view, I bet he's a great dancer, I, you know, you could see him, uh, you know, being abroad and being a hitman, but also one who's like, you know, oddly down to earth, um, and he carries himself and projects a sort of confidence uh, and charisma that I think is very much Vincent Vega. Oh, that's that's painful. Wow. Well, it's, okay. It's not Jonah Hill. I mean, what's wrong with David Diggs? <laughs> Give me one thing that's wrong with him. Nothing. I mean, okay, I'm changing the race a little bit, and that's significant because, you know, Vincent is white, David Diggs is, is black, but uh, maybe wait and see what my other picks are for my list. All right, all right. As, as you were gearing up there, I, th- I was pretty sure you were going to go with Peter Simonoshek, but um, worldly Peter Simonoshek is, is German, not from Amsterdam. <laughs> There's a big difference. All right. Well, uh, for me, I, I looked at a different side of, uh, of this. I looked at John Travolta in, um, in 1994 when Pulp Fiction came out. This was really a big comeback for him. He had uh, he had been a big star in the uh, in the late seventies, early eighties, and had really fallen fallen out of uh, stardom really for the last <clears throat> for a good ten or fifteen years there. And Pulp Fiction put him back on the map. So I started to think, who are some uh, who are some actors who are around the same age as Travolta was that had been some decent stars about 10 or 15 years ago and had kind of fallen off the map a little bit and need a comeback that could uh that could pull off this part of being a kind of just this somewhat aloof and go with the flow kind of guy and the guy I went with went with was Josh Hartnett as my Vincent Vega as his comeback role and his return to uh, to uh, prominence, uh, I, I think I I could see him I could see him pull it off. It, it it would be a little bit of a stretch, but let's face it, it was a stretch for John Travolta as well. So I'm going Josh Hartnett, former heartthrob I mean, that becomes uh, that becomes uh, Tarantino's muse in this movie. Alex Garland directing Josh Hartnett does not sound like Pulp <laughs> Fiction to me. I mean, you're definitely going for someone who has not done anything in the last 15 years? 20 years? 
Exactly. Is he even is he even acting anymore? What was the last thing he did? That's a great question. I'll look that up while we I move think on. Since, was he in a movie after Sin City or Black Dahlia? Lucky number eleven. Lucky, Lucky number eleven. Yeah, yeah, that was two thousand six. I mean, he's in need of a comeback, but but John Travolta was great to begin with. Was Josh Hartnett ever that great? Uh, that's a good question. Probably not, but let's see here. Well, he's it, oh, he Josh was, Travolta was at least an Oscar nominee. Josh that's Hartnett true. was in Penny Dreadful, which was a an HBO show that was yeah. from 2014 to 2016. You had to IMDb that though. That's not fair. Yeah. Like. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, no. when I. 30 Days of Night was one that I thought of, too, but that's 2007. Black Dahlia, Lucky Number Slevin. Yeah. Yeah, so you gotta go back a ways. You do. But I, I'm, I'm going with it. I think he could pull it this off. This is true Jackie Earl Haley comeback role kind of thing. Exactly. Well, that's what that's what it was for Travolta. I mean... He had Look Who's Talking, like, right before He had that. Look Who's Talking. That was a box, that was a box office hit, at least. Yeah. True. I mean, let's face it. This was supposed to be Michael Madsen, and and John Travolta got the sloppy seconds. So, true. Okay, let's move on to uh, to Jules Samuel Jackson in what was one of the most iconic roles of his career. Todd, who's Jules? Okay, well, I think this is the most unrecastable role that we've ever had. It's impossible to imagine anyone but Samuel Jackson, I think. But I went with uh, Derek Luke. Uh, I think because he, he has the charisma and the badassness to at least give it a shot. And it's been a while since he's had a real significant role. I and I did just watch him in like the in a movie that I was like I reminded him that he was actually really good. So. Derek Luke, I think, would be my best guess at what who could maybe play Jules, but it's impossible. All right, I've got two that are better than that. Zach, who do you have for Jules? Yeah, I agree with Todd that it's it's virtually impossible to recast Samuel L. Jackson. But going along with my uh, more racially diverse kind of throwing it upside down casting, uh, I'm going to go with Raphael Casal as Jules. Now, of course, if you know <laughs> Blind Spotting, Raphael Casal and uh, David Diggs had a great chemistry as the two main protagonists in Blind Spotting, and I think their chemistry is what would translate over really well to a Pulp Fiction remake. I've never seen Raphael Casal. In anything other than blind spotting, and obviously as a white jewels, it would be quite a bit of a <coughs> of a st- stretch in some areas. But if you watch that movie, you can kind of see the badassness of of that character. And um, I, you know, I, I again, I love their chemistry, I love their relationship, and uh, why not switch the races a little bit? I, make it interesting, change it up a little bit. Um, I, I just want to see more of of their friendship uh, in the movies, and why not the remake of Pulp Fiction? So you want it to be a little bit more like Sideways? <coughs> I, uh, I, I guess. I think I really want it to be more like Blind Spotting, but uh, sure, anything that's more like Sideways is a, is a good thing. Well, you said Blind Spotting was like Sideways. So. Oh, well, yeah, that's true. That, yeah. All right. But but I agree. It, 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 the caveat is it, it, no one could play that role except for Samuel L. Jackson. Even Tarantino says in interviews about the film, it's it was a role written. It can't exploded off the page Samuel L. Jackson so it, it's difficult so when I was looking at Jules I was looking for someone that could command the room like Samuel L. Jackson does in that movie I mean he he's able to to draw your attention even when he's not the one that's talking 
Um, and when he is talking, he he just is amazing and and just incredibly. You, you you can't take your eyes off of him, and neither can any other character. So I was thinking of someone that could do that, and the two names that popped into my head were two names, two guys that really have taken. If there's a if there's a prominent role for a black man in Hollywood over the last couple of years, either Sterling K. Brown or Mahershala Ali get it, and I think both of them could have this same state, um, the same presence in the room. Uh, I'm gonna go Sterling K. Brown as as my uh, as my jewels, and I think he could pull it off. Uh, I I think Mahershala it would definitely be a step out for him with some of the other stuff that he's been doing, but I I could see him do it as well. But yeah, Sterling K. Brown is who I'm gonna go with for jewels. Thank God you didn't say Chadwick Boseman. No. <laughs> <laughs> you said a prominent role for an African American. I was like, he's gonna say Chadwick Boseman. No, 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 no. That does a good job in what they do. <laughs> yes. Oh, Chadwick Boseman does does his does his thing all right. It's just these two are better. Okay, moving on. Let's go to Butch, played by Bruce Willis. Todd, who do you got? All right. Well, uh, Butch is of course a boxer, and as established in Gone in sixty seconds, Scott Con he looks like a boxer. So that's what I went with. <laughs> and it would be a career role for him. I have, absolutely have loved Scott Con and everything he's done, whether it's you know the Hawaii Five O or or whatever. And uh, it it would be awesome to see him in this role and bruce willis it was the best role he ever had i think he's never been better than he was in this role i think scott con would absolutely live as as butch I, I i must say todd that might be your most inspired choice we've ever done in a recasting right there that is <laughs> a you. great choice that's a great choice zach what do you got all right, uh, for my recasting of Butch, obviously you're looking for someone who's powerful but vulnerable in some ways um, and uh, who could uh, box, although we don't technically ever see Butch in a fight. So I don't think that physical component is as important. Um, so I decided to go with uh, Gina Rodriguez. Um, obviously she's badass, she's Miss Bala, and uh, there's no reason why Butch needs to be a male character. I think that's sort of irrelevant to his character, and uh, I think she carries her i mean if you've seen annihilation if you've seen miss bala you know uh she is badass and she'd kill it i think but i mean but then fabian would have to be a guy ah, well and, you know what we might be recasting fabian in my cast too so uh just hang tight there but what kind of guy is going to ask for blueberry pie and blueberry muffin or pancakes, blueberry pancakes. why does it have to be a guy i mean her name would be Butch. Oh. Uh, so I, I, I may be giving too much away. Sorry. All right. Giving me oral pleasure. <laughs> Can you record that for the intro on our next episode? <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, so when I was looking at Butch, I was looking at the fact that probably out of everyone in this movie, um, Bruce Willis was probably the biggest star at the time. Uh, which is interesting that this role was the one that the biggest star was in. Uh, so I thought this was a spot to put the biggest star of my, of my remake, and that would be Channing Tatum. Uh, I think he, he has a, that similar persona of the, the movie star, um, and that he, he has that tough guy look that can be vulnerable. Uh, I'm going Channing Tatum. Close runner-up, uh, Zac Efron. I think he could pull it off, oh. too. 
not Zach Efron, but the Channing Tatum pick is a very good pick. Yeah, I can see it. That's your most inspired pick so far, Terry. All right. Well, that that that's good. At least I've got something. All right. Uh, let's go. Let's go, Mia Wallace. Todd, Mia Wallace, first Uma Thurman. Now who? Uh, so Mia is another one is kind of hard to cast. I don't really think that it's that difficult to play, but it's hard to see anyone but Uma in that role. The only one that kept coming in my head was Emma Stone, but I know that they, she wouldn't take the part. But it would be cool to see her in Jonah Hill. Uh, but I went with Haley Lou Richardson because I think she has sort of the subtlety and can capture some of what Uma had, and she's just endlessly watchable, and that's what you need to be to be uh, Mrs. Mia Wallace. You need to you need to be watchable, and you need to actually like her and care about her. So I think she's way too young to play Mia. I mean, Mia what? Wallace. She's like was... twenty three. Like yeah, that's about Uma... that was about what Uma was. Yeah, Uma was twenty three. I don't know. I. Yeah, I mean, the, like the difference between Mia and Marcellus's age is really problematic, but uh, that's how it was when when Tarantino did it. So I I I'm with her. She does look young though. All right, Zach. It's not a terrible pick. I mean, I really like I, I like that actress a lot. She just yeah, I, I've only seen her in movies where she was essentially a teenager. So I don't know. Um, so yeah, I think Mia's a challenging role because um, you know. It, the, the the characteristics of the character a lot of actresses could play, but you got to have, again, this sort of mysterious, sexy vibe, but also someone who's like kind of sarcastic and really kind of biting in your wit. And uh, the first person that came to mind leapt off the page when I was thinking about this was uh, Aubrey Plaza. I mean, Aubrey Plaza is hilarious and she's uh, sort of mysterious and can carry herself in a lot of different ways. And we don't really know Mia's motives that well. And she seems a little bit reckless with her drug use. And I think Aubrey Plaza could take it in in that direction, but also maintain Uma's uh, level of like sophistication and in intimidation in a way and, and mystery uh, because we don't know if Mia is responsible for the death of Tony uh, what's his name Tony uh, uh, you know the, the Samoan guy that got pushed out the window um, well anyway Tony Rocky Hara um, yes Aubrey Plaza is my pick for Mia alright alright that's not too bad so as I was thinking about this casting the two things I thought about um, about Uma Thurman at that time were one like Todd said Uma was only 23 years old when she played when she That's played Mia believe. Wallace. I That's know. Amazing. Isn't that insane? I mean, you can't I wouldn't have guessed that. Yeah, I mean, 23-year-old actresses nowadays, like like you said, have trouble playing anything but high schoolers. They can't get roles playing anything but a high schooler. Um so I thought that and then the other thing I thought of was her stature. Uh Uma Thurman's 5'10". I mean, she she could stand there and look any of the guys in this movie in the eye. Um and then I, I, so I was trying to find someone that could, that could, uh, that was around the same age that could have the same stature. And one of the things I realized is that no great actresses really that are that age, unless you, unless you really go young and go like Elle Fanning, uh, have that stature. So, uh, I had to leave that one aside and go with someone and kind of like Todd did, you have to graduate someone from playing a high schooler into playing a, more of an adult role and, for some reason, when I came across this actress, just her persona and the way she could pull this off and the way she looks, I could see her fitting into that Mia Wallace role, and that was Emma Roberts. Um, one that definitely would be graduating from playing that high schooler, but uh, but I could I could see her. She has the the look, and I think it, it's they both have those big eyes that that just draw you in, 
and uh, I I could totally see her fill, fitting into this role and uh, and being that that uh, that brash beauty that uh, that goes alongside uh, with everything going on. I just kind of like that. All right, Marcellus Wallace. Originally Ving Rhames. Todd, what do you got? Okay, well, Marcellus is a character who really just needs to be intimidating and be able to deliver lines like, Mr. Soon be living the rest of his short-ass life in agonizing pain. Rapist here. And uh, for me, like, with Donald Glover being the director, it had to be Brian Tyree Henry. It was so painfully obvious when I just thought oh, about it. I knew you were going to pick him. That was uh, so obvious. I know. It, it, it is obvious. And he would absolutely kill it. I, it, it was the one that I was just like, okay, once I found my director, I was like, that's my, obviously that's my Marcellus. It, it, is, it, is it funny that I thought of the exact same line as I was trying to think of someone to play Marcellus? That was the same line that was rolling through my head of who could say this line and be convincing. All right, Zach, who do you have? Now, for me, this was the easiest recasting, although I do like Todd's pick. Um, uh, I went with Terry Crews. Come on. I mean, let's just get real. It's over. Terry, I, I don't need to say anything else. It's done. Easy. I thought about Terry Crews also. I thought about Terry Crews also. Um, he, the one thing with Terry Crews, though, I mean, he, he's that big, intimidating guy, but he's he's so muscular that he's not really that large. Does that make sense? I don't know. No. I don't know. Anyways, I, 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 w- I went with I was looking for intimidating and to find what I wanted in in someone that would be that intimidating figure. I had to go outside the box. Um, uh, like like Todd said, it just has to be someone that can uh, deliver the lines in an intimidating fashion. And I went with LeBron James. I mean, no one would be mm. more intimidating as Marcellus than a six eight, two hundred and eighty pound beast. And pretty much anything he would say at that point, as long as he said it deadpan, it would be intimidating. So there's no way there's no way he could play it seriously. There, there's and, and anyone would take it seriously. And, and I, I don't think there's any way he would. He, his, People would be laughing in the theater. I don't. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know. No one laughed at Tony Siragusa in what was it, Twenty Fifth Hour? That's true. And you're comparing Tony Siragusa but... to LeBron James. <laughs> As an athlete trying to play a serious acting role, sure. Yeah, but not like the most like recognizable athlete in of our <laughs> lifetime compared to Tony Siragusa. <laughs> uh, dude, he would be intimidating. Why not have Tiger Woods play Jules? Then why not <laughs> screw it? Or what about Steph Curry? He could play Jules. There you go. There you go. I'm going. I'm going with it. I'm going with it deal with it all right i think there's one more that we're doing all together and that is lance the uh the freaked out drug dealer played by eric stoltz todd who's your lance okay well lance is a manic role and uh ideally if he was younger it would be uh ben foster and then this is where i wanted to put in lakeith stanfield but i went with michael pitt because I think that he has that sort of manic rage, and he that adrenaline shot seems to be just as intoxicating as it was the first time. And I think he essentially is like the our generation's Eric Stoltz in a way. So 
Michael Pitt, I think, I think is is the right choice. All right. Yeah, talk about someone in need of a comeback. I'd, I'd love to see Michael Pitt in more movies. Dude, Michael um, Pitt could be Vincent at this point. Yeah, probably. That's a better pick than Josh Hartnett, Terry. You should take note. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, essentially, I'm 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 going to replicate Todd. Someone manic. Uh, you know, we picked Lance because everyone loves Lance. I mean, he's a great character. Uh, I went with Caleb Landry Jones, but um, oh, yes. yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's maybe the obvious choice, but so the red hair. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> Michael Angarano, guys. I mean, you, I I thought about that. Yeah, young William yeah. Miller. Yeah. You got yeah. you got to uh, put him in there. It's a possibility. The the other one that I thought of that would be it'd be a step out for him, but I think it it, it could work. Uh, Daniel Radcliffe. I could see it. Huh? Either him mm. him and uh, and Paul Dano. Yeah, Paul Dano. I thought about. So I also thought about Robert Pattinson. How come this is the role that we have the most people in mind for? Go figure. It's a fun role. It's a fun, it role. A fun role. It's a fun, like, ten-minute role that you just get a get on screen, act like a crazy person, and then you're done. Maybe Johnny Knoxville. He's used to five-minute cameos at this point. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, you know, he he needs a comeback after Polar. Um, yeah, okay. Uh, Todd, do you have any more you wanna you want to throw out there? Yeah, so uh, Lance's wife, Jody, which was played by Rosanna Arquette. Um, uh, I watched this movie recently called uh, uh, Rob the Mob, and uh, there, her, his wife in that was Nina Arianda, who is also uh, Steve Coogan's wife in Stan and Ollie, and I think they had a really good chemistry, so I'm going to duplicate that here. She would be crazy as Jody. And then you got Pumpkin and Honey Bunny. I went with Lakeith Stanfield because I had to get him in somewhere. And Tessa Thompson, who was his co-star in uh, Sorry to Bother You. Very nice. I think that 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 those scenes would be really interesting. Uh, Captain Coons, which was originally played by uh, Christopher Walken. I went with another person who could just sit there with a stone face and like and his work on Barry. You could really see they could do dramatic work, and that's Bill Hader. I think it'd be an mm. amazing scene with Bill Hader and uh, the Wolf, of course, which was Harvey Keitel. I went with Alec Baldwin because I like him coming in and barking orders at the leads because uh, he's really good at that, as we have seen in several other movies. So, those are the re- that's the rest of the cast that I put together. All right, Zach, what do you got? <clears throat> All right, well, um, my butch was Gina Rodriguez, and uh, I I decided that Fabian would be played by uh, Ana de Armas, better known as uh, Ryan Gosling's robot girlfriend from Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Um, I I think they would have really good chemistry. Uh, I had the wolf being played by Fat Vigo Mortensen, um, and <laughs> I had Captain Koontz as a relatively obscure actor from Germany named Peter Simonischek. Um, of course, I think he could play that role really well and then since this is directed by bo burnham i also cast elsie fisher as a young butch who grows up to be gina rodriguez (laughs) (laughs) wow Uh, yeah that's all i was gonna say she becomes a latina boxer (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Just beautiful. <clears throat> that, yeah. Okay. So I, I've got two. Uh, Captain Coons, I would go with uh, Bradley Cooper. I, I could see him fitting into okay. that. And it, it's just kind of a, a quick throwaway role by a, a recognizable face. Uh, the Wolf, uh, Matt Dillon. 
That's a good one. I could I, like I could see him him pull pull that off. It'd almost be like a like a grown up version of uh of what's his face and there's something about Mary. Healy. Yeah, Healy. Except, you know, actually good at his job. Um one one thing that I find interesting about this, so I was um uh listening to a podcast and they were talking about uh the scene with lance and um they said that this was actually based on a true story um that was um that came about during um so uh, in martin scorsese's taxi driver the guy who plays the gun dealer um he was actually like a hustler in new york city at the time and he uh scorsese did a documentary is that what it was todd he did a documentary about that guy and and um and this was a story that he told about having to give this girl an adrenaline shot and using the magic marker on her chest of where to hit and and all this stuff and and tarantino just totally ripped it off from that uh that story and it was the actual guy who played the gun dealer and taxi driver pretty pretty crazy story it's good to know yeah all right i i just can't get over your remake terry LeBron James is married to Emma Roberts. Yep. I mean, that's what you're going <laughs> that's with. That's what I'm going with. That's what I'm going with. I mean, you, the one thing LeBron does have going for him is he's balding, you know? You, you have Elsie <laughs> Fisher growing up into Gina Rodriguez. Well, I mean, you know. <laughs> eighth grade is a tough time for young people. And Peter Simonashek is a Vietnam vet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, at this point. <laughs> uh, okay, <clears throat> we need to move on. All right, it's time for power rankings. You can't top that. Yeah, that's the movie about the horse. I'm gonna pull an audible at the last minute here. That's because I haven't seen it. Power rankings. Not including Fargo. Can't choose Fargo ever again. It has been a while, but last time we did power rankings, Zach, you won our little game, so you got to pick our power rankings for this time. Um, before we uh, before we get into this, uh, Todd, why don't you give us our uh, our updated score of uh, of our power rankings game? Our running total as of right now, we have Todd at ten and a half, Zach at seven and a half, and Terry falling way behind with five. Oh gosh, I didn't realize I was that far behind. Okay, Zach, what are we doing? All right, well, in honor of uh, some of the films that have been nominated for Best Picture that didn't have the world's greatest reviews, and I'm looking at you, Vice, and Bohemian Rhapsody, um, I decided to go with the top films that got a rotten score on RottenTomatoes.com. So in other words, films that got a 60% or below based on the uh, cumulative uh, critics' reviews. And um, we can kind of leave it up into, to interpretation of how, how, how we interpreted this list, but uh, anything that got a negative review. Okay. Top films. Top films. Top rotten films. Top rotten films, correct. Okay. All right. Power rankings best rotten films i'm gonna go first number five on my list is a favorite of mine it's kind of like a poor man's sideways that is 2008's bottle shock starring uh alan rickman and chris pine bill pullman 
based on a true story of the uh, of the uh, rise of the California wine industry and a blind taste test that took place uh, between some California wines and some French wines, and the California wines win. Uh, Alan Rickman plays a snobby wine critic that is a fish out of water wandering through hippie Napa Valley. Uh, it's a lot of fun. I don't know how the critics didn't like it. Uh, yeah, 48% on Rotten Tomatoes. It's kind of crazy. Uh, and, Zach, I can't believe you haven't seen this yet. Number five, oh. Bottle Shock. No, I, I have not seen it, nor have I heard of it. Uh, I feel ashamed. I feel like we should rename our podcast Almost Sideways Bottle. That makes no <laughs> sense. Because but I well, like it. All right. All right, Zach. Zach, number five. Uh, My number five is uh, from 2004. Maybe the best Adam Sandler comedy ever made. uh, A movie that was really misunderstood by critics unfairly. And that is Fifty First Dates uh, with a a whopping 45% of critics approving of it. I don't know what critics didn't see in this movie. I think it's hilarious. I love the chemistry between Drew Barrymore and Adam Sandler. It's much better than The Wedding Singer. And uh, it takes the basically the same premise as Groundhog Day, but does it in a much more kind of romantic, cute way. And we see like a charming side of Adam Sandler, which we don't get to see a lot in his earlier comedies. And uh, this was right after coming off the heels of Punch Drunk Love, so he was starting to make respectable films. Um, and I don't know what the critics missed. I, th- I feel like, you know, he was praised for his work in Punch Drunk Love. He should have been praised here. And uh, the critics really missed out on this one. This is a really, really great film. I love it. Fifty First Dates, best Adam Sandler comedy, unless you count Punch Drunk Love as a sort of warped, perverted comedy. It is a terrible choice. I think it's Adam Sandler's worst movie. But wow, whatever. hot take, police. It, it's it's good. It's right. It's right at the where he starts to to uh, decline in his you know early films. It's but I think it's like the last great Adam Sandler comedy and then they're they're just bad from there todd you have no soul i think i think grown-ups 2 is better than 50 first dates i think i give it a half a star i'm pretty sure i give it a half a star you're telling me that it, it the scene where he like you know comes up with all those reasons like on the side of the road for her to pull over and like save him you know like being being tied up like on a railroad you you, you didn't laugh during that scene like that's hilarious stuff I don't think I laughed at all. Uh, again, no, I don't, no I don't, soul. I don't, I don't, I don't think I, I don't really find Drew Barrymore all that funny either. So, wow, wow. Anyway, anyway, Todd, number five. My number five is actually a tie. I kind of hate to do that, but uh, these movies are so similar in subject and the how they tell the story. Uh, it's Alpha Dog and Bully. They even have the same percentage of 54%. They're the tragic, true stories of young people who get in over their head in crime, including murder. And uh, they're both really, really good movies. And I know Terry hates Bully, but I, I've always been drawn to stories like these. And I don't understand how they're really rotten. I mean, the directors aren't really great directors. They don't have a, a perfect track record or anything, but... I don't know. I, I constantly flip-flop my preference in these, depending on the day. And since they have the same percentage, I had to make them tied here. But, yeah. Alpha Dog and Bully. Two really good movies uh, are my number five. I always wanted to see Alpha Dog, so you made me watch Bully. So, I still haven't seen Alpha Dog. So, thank you for that, Todd. 
Well, maybe that'll be next. Then I'll make you watch. There we go. Maybe, maybe. All right, number four on my list is one of those movies that I have always loved, and I've seen it over and over again. In fact, for a while, I thought it was a made-for-TV movie because it was playing on like TNT like once a week when I was in high school, and I fell in love with this movie. It's from 1997, Murder at 1600, starring Wesley Snipes and Diane Lane, um, Dennis Miller, Alan Alda, uh, some some great 90s names in there. So it's a story of a murder that takes place at the White House and uh, the joint investigation between uh, DC Homicide, led by Wesley Snipes' character, and the Secret Service, and Diane Lane plays his liaison into that. Um, it's pretty much, at this point, more of a, a glorified like serial crime drama on TV, but it it's still a lot of fun. It's really good. It's got some good twists and turns in it. Uh, it keeps you guessing. It keeps you on the edge of your seat. Uh, I've always enjoyed this movie, and I could still pop it in and watch, pick it up at any point and watch it and love it. So... Uh, Murder at 1600, it originally, it got a 33% on Rotten Tomatoes, and I don't understand why. Number four on my list. I've never seen it. I'll have to believe you. Believe your word for it. I kind of remember it. I think I watched it one time. Dude, check it out again. It's it's worth it. It's fun. Alright, Zach, number four. All right, well, my number four is a movie that I feel like if it came out today, the critics would be much kinder to it um, based on its star, Denzel Washington. Maybe in the early 2000s, um, you know, right on the heels of his Oscar win for Training Day, people weren't really into some of Denzel's movies. And admittedly, some of his career choices were a little questionable, like John Q. But I really like Man on Fire, which is my number four pick, coming in at 39% on Rotten Tomatoes. I think it's Tony Scott's best film, R.I.P. Tony Scott. And it tells the story of uh, Denzel Washington as this uh, former assassin who is kind of reduced. He's an alcoholic assassin. He's kind of reduced uh, to working as a bodyguard for this little girl played by Dakota Fanning, who was like the, you know, the little girl in every movie of the early 2000s. Um, But she's really good in this movie. And he is her bodyguard. And uh, there's a bunch of kidnappings going on in Mexico City. She's like a rich little girl. He tries to protect her. They like forge a relationship that's really cute. And ultimately she does get kidnapped. And I really just like this movie mostly for the first 45 minutes. The rest of it is sort of, sort of standard action movie. But, you know, it's it's pretty good. I like the supporting characters uh, played by uh, Christopher Walken and Mickey Rourke and uh, Mr. Jan- Jennifer Lopez himself, uh, Mr. Mark Anthony. And uh, I don't know why critics didn't like it. I, I think it's pretty fun. Um, it's, uh, you know, uh, in, the, in the equalizer era of Denzel movies, I think critics would have bought it more. But uh, I don't know why critics uh, were so uh, opposed to it. So it's a fun action movie. If you love Denzel Washington, it's, uh, it's a must-see. It's, I think, one of his better performances of the 2000s. So number four, Man on Fire. Underrated flick. You're crazy if you think that's Tony Scott's best movie. Okay, I guess besides uh, True Romance. How, uh, his best movie of, of the 2000s. And, and Crimson Tide. Okay, okay that's of the true. 2000s, maybe. All right, all right. Of, his, of the 2000s. Well, Domino's underrated, too. Top Gun. True. It's better than Top Gun. Uh, dude, dude. Maybe I've never seen Top Gun. What? <laughs> Your turn, Todd. Okay. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. You've never seen Top Gun? I've never seen Top Gun, no. 
I don't get the references. <sighs> You've lost that love and feeling? Doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, it's just a volleyball movie. That's all. <laughs> okay, maybe if I gosh. maybe if I lose trivia today, you should assign it to me, Terry. Uh, maybe next time. I think you're watching <laughs> Bottle Shock when you lose, because you are going to lose. Todd, number. Ooh. What are we on? Number four. Number four. Terry calling his shot. <laughs> all right. My number four is coming in at forty-seven percent. It's Oliver Stone's Natural Born Killers. Uh, there's no way it would be rotten if it came out today. It was truly ahead of its time. It's about Mickey and Mallory, who are lovers and go on a killing spree across the country, becoming media sensations, and uh, everyone's obsessed with serial killers and their motives and memorabilia, and this really uh, embodies that truth in painful fashion about how they become celebrities. Uh, Woody Harrelson and Juliette Lewis are at the top of their game in this movie, and there are definitely issues with it, but... Having it over half rotten is absolutely absurd. It's it's become an iconic movie, and Natural Born Killers is obviously one of the best rotten movies that there is. Yeah, it's really hard to argue with that one. Uh, the critics back then were just you know opposed to the violence, I guess, and the over top over the top editing and acting in that movie. But obviously, it's a it's a neo masterpiece. I have not seen that one. You haven't seen it, Terry? How could Lame. you not seen it? Yeah, I, you're I, giving me crap for Top Gun, and you haven't seen Natural Born Killers. Oh no, no, no! You cannot even compare those two. That that I no. Think, I think no. it's fair to compare them. That that is not a fair <laughs> comparison at all. Okay, number three on my list is from 2008. Uh, originally with 26 percent on Rotten Tomatoes, it is Seven Pounds, starring Will Smith. Uh, I remember when this movie came out, I absolutely loved it. It is the story of um, of a man named Ben, played by Will Smith, who is basically trying to redeem himself for past mistakes in his life by helping redeem those that have uh, been uh, wrongfully injured or hurt in some way, uh, and they had no part in it. Innocently... Uh, innocently affected by uh, by tragedy and uh it, it's it's a very touching movie i i thought it was fascinating as the story slowly unfolds and you realize what's going on uh it's got a great cast with uh supporting characters like rosario dawson woody harrelson michael ely barry pepper uh i i loved this movie when it came out and i think what it's most remembered as now is it's remembered as the movie that ended really the reign of will smith it was like the first movie in 10 years from will smith that didn't gross over a hundred million dollars at the box office ending like the craziest streak of all time when it came to box office numbers so uh i don't understand why people didn't like it i thought it was it was incredibly moving and touching uh seven pounds by number three yeah, it's a good pick. I haven't seen it since it came out in theaters, but I remember liking it too and not quite understanding what, what critics hated about it. I think it was an easy movie to kind of pile up on, maybe. Um, and, you know, if you kind of know the twist ending in it, it's a, if you read it online, like, it sounds like an outrageous twist, but I, I remember it not being that terrible. But it's, it's a pretty solid pick, Terry. Good, good choice. Thank you. Thank you. All right, number three. 
All right, number Zach. three. Uh, number three on my list. Uh, any list about movies that are misunderstood by the general population has to include uh, the classic Paul Verhoeven, Joe Esther Haas movie from 1995. That is Showgirls, the first major NC-17 film. I suspect critics may not have liked it because of its NC-17 rating. I'm not really sure, but they missed what is obviously a masterpiece. I mean, you know, you can't write dialogue like some of the dialogue in Showgirls. It takes a lot of skill to, for Elizabeth Barkley and Gina Gershon and Kyle MacLachlan to have the, those kind of takes in the movie. And uh, it, it, it's the work of a passionate artist, a misunderstood gem, and it's Jacques Rivette's favorite movie of the 1990s. So if you don't believe me, just look at the Ding. new wave uh, directors. So uh, it's a classic, very misunderstood. It has a cult following. Um, see it and love it and, uh, you know, try to comprehend why people didn't like it back in the 90s. They took themselves way too seriously. Number three, Showgirls. If you go into it knowing it's going to be horrible you will be entertained. It's kind of like The Room. If, if you go into it knowing it's going to be horrible, you'll be completely entertained. If you go into it expecting the substance that everyone expected to get out of it, it's terrible. Yeah, but, I don't know. I actually don't think it's like on it's like quite like the room i actually think there are some parts of the movie that are that are really good and i think it takes talent to make it it's not like they were like tommy uh you know uh tommy uh what's his name uh wiseau uh, and we're trying to do something deliberately campy like i think they were trying to be authentic and it was just bad but like entertainingly over the top ridiculous bad and as we know that makes it a dark comedy in zach's rankings oh yes that's right Yes. <laughs> okay. My number three is uh, the 1996 uh, movie by David Cronenberg, Crash. Comes in at 59%. Uh, this is a movie that has never really left my memory, even though I only watched it once. It's, uh, it's about the subculture of people who watch car crashes and see them as sexual in nature. It's got James Spader in it as the lead, and it's got Elias Coteus and Holly Hunter... Uh, it's the most twisted thing that Cronenberg has ever done, and that's saying something. Uh, I understand the negative reviews, it's not for everyone, but it is something really special, and I, <laughs> I've i always really liked the movie. I think it's in my top ten of that year. Yeah, but Crash, the 1996 version, is uh, my number three. I think the Siskel and Ebert review of Crash is like my number three all-time Siskel and Ebert review of it. They absolutely uh, destroy each other. It's really funny to watch if you haven't seen it online. And it's definitely the better Crash. There's no movie that's been made with the title Crash that's better than Cronenberg's Crash. Ouch. I like I like Haggis's Crash. Oh. But you haven't seen Cronenberg's Crash. I haven't seen Cronenberg's Crash, but if it's anything like a history of violence, <laughs> I'll uh <laughs> I'll like the other one better. All right, number two on my list. Uh, it was mentioned a few podcasts ago, coming in at 46%. is 2010's Hereafter, directed by Clint Eastwood. Uh, the story of, of these people who've had near-death experiences that now are obsessed with, uh, obsessed with death and seeing to the beyond... And, and some people that have a capability of communicating with the beyond. Uh, it stars Matt Damon... Um, and has uh, some other great supporting parts in it. I, I found this movie fascinating when it came out. Uh, I I really enjoyed it. 
I didn't understand why people didn't like it. Actually, I was I was shocked to see that it had a rotten rating. Um, and the uh, the opening scene uh, is is absolutely outstanding. One scene got this movie a best visual effects nomination as it uh, as it portrays a uh, a tsunami hitting uh, hitting a resort a small resort town. Uh, it absolutely incredible. Uh, and uh, and yeah, just one scene, one like. 15 second clip got this a nomination for best visual effects at the Oscars. Uh, absolutely captivating movie. My number two. That is a great choice. I like that movie a lot. I've never see, seen it. Well, two of us love it. And I, see, how, how did it get a rotten review? I don't know. I don't know. All right. Zach, number two. All right, number two on my list is, uh, now this again I think illustrates where our uh, interpretations of this list maybe splinter a little bit. I wasn't necessarily looking at movies that I love that happened to get negative reviews. I was more thinking about movies that got lambasted by critics that I actually don't think are terrible and I would actually recommend. So when I was doing this list, you know, I had to give the movie thumbs up. And I think I actually give my number two movie, which is actually a tie, uh, both of these movies thumbs up. And that is, uh, sadly to say, Cheaper by the Dozen and Cheaper by the Dozen 2. I'm ashamed to say it, but it gets to me, man. I mean, Steve Martin and Bonnie Hunt, they got all those kids, you know, and, and all the kids, you know, they have their cute little problems. And, you know, the, the mom goes away on the book tour and then in the sequel, which Loki is better than the original, like they got to go out to the summer camp and they got to compete with the, the Eugene Levy family. And, you know, it's like a some fun summertime activities and, uh, yeah, you, you know, it's cute, you know, um, and, and, and if you don't agree with me, then read up Roger Ebert's review of both, which he liked as well. I think we're the only two people in the world that liked it because uh, Cheaper by the Dozen, the first one, got 24%, and Cheaper by the Dozen, two, got 6%. And, uh, yeah, me and Roger are probably th- that 6%. So, I'm, I'm... Yeah, me and Ben Stone uh, uh, disagree. Like, <laughs> this movie's not funny. <laughs> This guy, guy with twelve kids. That's not funny. That's a lot of responsibility. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm seeing <laughs> like, a theme on Zach's list. Uh, ever, almost every single one of his uh, his movies so far, has at some point he says, "I don't know why the critics didn't like it. Roger liked it." No, that's and... not true. Ro- Roger gave thumbs down <laughs> to Man on Fire and Showgirls. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. So only half of them. He's uh, he's. He enjoyed. did like he did like Showgirls quite a bit more than other critics, though. I will say that. All right, Todd, number two. All right, my number two, like Terry, is a Clint Eastwood movie that uh, I loved, and I don't think critics did for whatever reason. I was the only champion of it when it came out, and that's 2014's Jersey Boys. Uh, I think it's one of Eastwood's absolute best movies, probably in his top six or so. And it's about the rise and fall of Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons. Uh, it's somewhat of a mob movie on top of being a, a music biopic. I think it's got brilliant writing, terrific music, great performances by the relative unknowns. Uh, I think it's different than any other movie of its kind. And I, it's a movie that I really, really like. And I cannot believe that it wasn't more well-received when it came out. Jersey Boys. Yeah, I, I really like Jersey Boys too. It was it was on my short list, but uh, but didn't make my top five. Um, all right, on to number one. My number one, the only four star rotten movie I have ever uh, given, 
coming in at 58%. Uh, and it may be an unpopular pick, but I don't care because I love this movie. 2009's It's Complicated, starring Meryl Streep, Steve Martin, and Alec Baldwin. Uh, written and directed by Nancy Myers. It's an amazing romantic comedy uh, where you have Meryl Streep, who uh, is a divorcee from Alec Baldwin, who all of a sudden finds herself in this love triangle uh, with her ex-husband, and this uh, sweet man, uh, Steve Martin, who actually plays a straight one in this. Um, he, he's the one that everyone plays off of instead of the one telling all the jokes. Uh, it's, it's hilarious. It's, it's uh, heartwarming. It's so much fun. I don't understand how it could have gotten negative reviews. And like I said, I gave it four stars. Uh, it it is a really great movie. If you, uh, it's a romantic comedy that I think everyone can uh, can has something in it that they can enjoy. Uh, yeah, I I loved it. And like I said, I don't understand the negativity around it. Uh, it was in my, I think it was in my top five of 2009. Uh, I gave it four stars. It's the number one on the this list. It's complicated. When was the last time you've seen this movie, Terry? I've seen, I saw bits and pieces of it on TV not that long ago. Um, start to finish, it's been a while. <laughs> like since the theater? Ten years? Maybe, maybe. I might have watched it one other time since then. Interesting. I think Alec Baldwin and Steve Martin were funnier when they hosted the Oscars that year. Well, they they never really interact with each other in the movie, which is interesting too. No, oh, that's not I, that's not true. I seem to remember a scene where uh, Alec Baldwin undresses in front of a uh, laptop uh, camera, and Steve oh, Martin sees it. Be. Yeah, you don't even remember. I said this movie. I said rarely I said rarely interact in the movie. So we've had multiple Steve Martin movies, multiple Woody Harrelson movies. Is there any other overlaps? Roger. <laughs> Roger, yeah. Uh, erotic uh, thrillers from the mid-90s? Yes, yes. All right. Well, Zach, why don't you give us your number one? Oh, and, uh, well, speaking of my number one, a another theme on, on this list is uh, Dakota Fanning, because she's also in my number one film of... Uh, this list, and that is Uptown Girls, uh, which has uh, 13% on Rotten Tomatoes. Now, I'm not going to go out and say Uptown Girls is deserving of, a, of a, an Academy Award, but I think it's a really sweet and charming movie. It's Brittany Murphy at her absolute best in a role that low-key is pretty high war, if you think about it, because it's hard to pull off that kind of uh, cute, uh, totally aloof, funny, physical acting um, and very appealing, and uh, she just does it wonderfully. Uh, maybe Emma Stone could pull it off today. I don't know, but there aren't that many other actors who could do it. And, and she's wonderful in this movie where she plays, hey, get this, Dakota Fanning's nanny. Um, we see, you know, saw her bodyguard and now her nanny. And, uh, you know, Dakota Fanning really nailed the whole precocious little kid thing in the early 2000s. Uh, it's a cute movie. It's really sweet. Only 13% of critics liked it. I have no idea why. Um, it has some really touching moments in it, and uh, it has a pet pig. So, you know, what more? I mean, uh, you're, you're heartless if you don't like this movie. It's, it's charming and cute. Uptown Girls, very misunderstood by, by the uh, elite and, critics. And you gave this movie thumbs up? Oh, absolutely, I gave it thumbs up. I gave it three and a half stars. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you got the pet pig in there. That, that, that's an important detail to... I feel like add. neither of you have seen it. Am I right nope. in that assumption? Uh-huh, exactly. So don't be a hater. Don't be a hater unless you're prepared to bring the hate. 
Adam gave it two and a half stars. Well, I mean, it's, you know, it's better than 13% on Rotten Tomatoes, so he marginally understands. I bet he'd give it thumbs up if he watched it again. I, 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 he might give it thumbs up after this podcast. Um, Todd, number one. All right, my number one actually is another Brittany Murphy movie. Uh, it's 1999's Girl Interrupted, directed by James Mangold, uh, 54% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, I actually think this movie is better than One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest in basically every way. I have no idea why people don't like it or why it could have possibly gotten negative reviews. Uh, it's the true story of this writer, played by Winona Ryder, who gets put in a mental hospital in the 60s. She gives her best performance of her career. Angela Jolie gives maybe the best supporting actress performance of all time. I don't, it's hypnotic and jarring, and I can't really see it getting lousy reviews now, especially, I think it would be almost problematic if it did. I, I think it's a fantastic movie, and it's it was easily the number one movie that I thought of when I actually saw that it had negative reviews. That's a good choice. I don't know why critics didn't like that movie. It's a really powerful, good movie. I've never seen Girl Interrupted. Well, dude, sounds like we, we need to stop listening to critics and actually get out and see these movies. I think so. I think so. See, don't don't listen to all the people you've heard of. Just listen to us. That's, and Roger Ebert. <laughs> and and Rod. Well, since he's not around anymore, just listen to us. That that's yeah. That that's. I think that's what this is saying. All right. So there are our top five. All right. Uh, let's let's do some honorable mentions before we get into our game. Uh, I've got uh, I've got. Oh, I'll go with five honorable mentions here. Um, the A-Team from 2010, great action movie, got 48%, I don't know how. Uh, Men of Honor from 2000 with Robert De Niro and Cuba Gooding Jr. about the first African-American deepwater diver, got a 42%. Um, one of my, I, I, I put it as one of the best comedies of the 2000s, Leatherheads from 2008 with George Clooney and John Krasinski, 52%. I love that movie. Uh, the Men Who Stare at Goats got a 51%, another George Clooney movie that I love. And, of course, Elizabethtown got a 29%. <laughs> it's such a great movie. I, those, I don't. Those 71% of critics were correct on that uh, one. I don't think so. All right, Zach, your honorable mentions. Okay, uh, my honorable mentions. Uh, coming in at 57%, Twister. Great movie from the 90s. Uh, Jumanji at 53%. What did critics not see about that? Both of the first two Diary, Diary of a Wimpy Kid movies <laughs> are both two solid thumbs-up movies that got 52 and 47% respectively. Junior, 36%. I mean, come on, you gave Kindergarten Cop thumbs up. Why not uh, Junior? Um, Beethoven second at 23%. I can't honestly say I would give that movie thumbs up, but I really like some aspects of it, and any movie with animals is, uh, you know, good with me. The Flintstones at 22% makes no sense. And then finally, coming in at a whopping 4%, Speed 2 Cruise Control, which, again, I can't really give it thumbs up, but I don't understand all the hatred out there. It got two thumbs up from, um, from, uh, Siskel and Ebert, so. A solid they, sequel they were the four percent really. yeah uh, apparently <laughs> all right todd honorable mentions all right i have uh at 60 percent i have henry and june the mc17 movie with uh fabian from uh pulp fiction uh i have the hudsucker proxy at 56 <laughs> uh coen brothers movie i really like uh vanilla sky 
I love that movie. It's at 41%. The Devil's Rejects from Rob Zombie, 53%. For Your Consideration, one of Christopher Guest's best movies is 52%. I have uh, the Robert De Niro uh, crime masterpiece, uh, The Good Shepherd, at 54%. And somehow Wes Anderson's best movie he ever made, The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, is rotten at 56%. And that is just absurd. All right. Yeah, I told Todd before this podcast I would have put The Devil's Rejects in my top list, except I haven't seen it. But I I feel like it's a movie that's actually better than what critics gave it. And uh, I like how you said Henry and June is the movie with Fabian, even though uh, Mia Wallace is also in it, too. <laughs> that's true. Someone out there probably caught that. <laughs> okay, well, let's hop into our game now and see how we did at predicting... Adam's list again. Adam of the uh, Red and Brown podcast, Adam Daily Live. Check him out on YouTube and wherever you find your podcasts. I found this a, a, to be an impossible list to to predict. Just looking at what we had, we all took it slightly different ways. So I had no idea how Adam was going to take this. So here's my uh, here's my top five for him. Number five is obviously animated Batman. Uh, number four is 2013's The Great Gatsby. Uh, number three is Southpaw with Jake Gyllenhaal. Number two is Jersey Boys. And number one, The Hobbit, The Battle of the Five Armies. Wow. All right. Uh, I'll go. Number five for me is Prince of Persia. Number four is Spice World. Number three is Suicide Squad. Number two is The Sandlot. And number one, which is going to be on his list, all right? This is the one I feel most confident about. Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. All right. Todd. All right. Uh, my number five is just the one I'm most confident is going to be on his list. That's The Neon Demon. Uh, number four, Bad Boys. Number three, Top Gun. Number two, Hot Rod, which has also obviously got to be on his list. And number one, I had The Sandlot. All right, Adam's list. Honorable mentions. Coming in at 36%, Saw 2. 59% Deep Blue Sea. At 40%, uh, Den of Thieves. Oh, that was a good movie. You did that. like that movie. At, yeah. at 47%, The Money Pit. Uh, and at 53%, Return to Oz. All right, now his top five. Number five, coming in at 56%, The Life Aquatic of Steve Zissou. Number four, at 58%, A Knight's Tale. Number three, at 57%, The Sandlot. Yeah. Number two, at 40%, Halloween, The Season of the Witch. And number one, at 57%, the clincher for Todd, the Neon Demon. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I got two. Todd got two. Zach got one. I didn't even sniff it. Um, so, Todd, you get another point. You get to pick our, our power ranking for the next podcast. And now it's time to move into our next game, and that is trivia. Are you ready? Well, let's hope so. Oh, I forgot about this. John Boyd is a slap in the face. This is going downhill quick. Trivia. 
All right, last time on trivia, Todd won, and he, uh, I will say he was slightly upset with me because his, uh, his pick for me was to try and make it before our top 10 podcast, which did not happen, because his pick for me was the 2018 film The Writer, which ended up on both Todd and Zach's top 10 lists. And now that I've seen it, uh, it is going to be on mine as well. It's probably sliding in at about number 9 or 10. Uh, this movie, written directed by Chloe Zhao, uh, kind of chronicles a true story of the star of the film, uh, who is Brady Jandro, who uh, plays Brady Blackburn, uh, a rodeo cowboy who um, has an injury, has an accident, and, uh, and ends up not being able to ride anymore and it's it's him dealing with that and learning how to be uh how to be a person outside of what is the only thing he ever knew uh everyone in the film is uh is a real life either either real life family of his or real life uh rodeo uh folk um it it really is an amazing movie it's it it feels i'm gonna compare it a little bit to roma because it just feels like a slice of life out of this guy's this guy's life you just it, it feels very lived in as you just get to experience what life is like for this for these characters um it, it was it was very beautifully shot uh i would definitely say chloe zhao is a is a director to watch but yeah uh three and a half stars for me for the writer um awesome movie and great recommendation todd that's new <laughs> <laughs> what that you recommended a good movie or that uh that I recommended a movie that I love that you actually like. Yeah, no, no, this is a, this is a good one. I I don't understand how anyone wouldn't wouldn't like this movie, which is why it doesn't have a hundred percent on Rotten Tomatoes, or pretty close. No, that's that's close. Yeah, yeah. Leave No Trace has a hundred percent. Oh, that's the one with the hundred percent, and yet was completely ignored by the Oscars. But that's a story for another time. Todd, what are we doing for trivia today? All right, so we have two categories. One for uh, uh, Super Bowl trivia, kind of, because the Super Bowl just happened. And uh, one for Oscar trivia, because the Oscars are going to happen very soon. So what we're going to do for this one, and I'm going to make the rules a little different. I'm going to give you three strikes, uh, because there are 25 <laughs> options for each of these categories. Uh, so you get a point for every one you get right. And if you got your third strike, the other person could still keep going on. So the first one is going to be the alma maters of the Super Bowl winning quarterbacks. Ugh. So there are 25 out of the, what, 53 Super Bowls. Uh, 25 alma maters represented. You don't need to know who the quarterback is necessarily. You just need to know uh, the name of the school. So since I made Terry watch uh, the good movie, I'll give Zach... Uh, first go at this at this category. All right. Well, the current Super Bowl winning quarterback, uh, unfortunately, uh, is Tom Brady, who is an alum of uh, Michigan. Well, Michigan has the most with six because of Brady. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna go with Alabama. Alabama has four, uh, two for Brett Bart Starr, one for Joe Namath and Ken Stabler. Uh, Arizona. Arizona has one for Nick Foles. Uh, Notre Dame. Notre Dame has five for four for Montana, one for Theismann. 
Uh, Tennessee. Tennessee has two. Both uh, Peyton Manning. Delaware. <laughs> Delaware hmm, has I one. Who went there? <laughs> Mr. Joe Flacco. <laughs> Uh, the University of California at Berkeley. California has one for Aaron Rodgers. Penn State. Penn State does not have one. I missed that. I, for, I, I misplayed that. That is a strike yeah, for Yeah, my bad. I knew that. Uh, Zach. Uh, Ole Miss. Ole Miss has two, both. Eli. UCLA. No, wait, hold on. I get to keep going. Oh, oh, sorry. I got, really? I got strike one. Oh, that's yeah. right. Okay. But I, I, won't, right. I won't pick that one. I'll pick okay. what I should have picked when I was thinking. I was thinking Kerry Collins for Penn State because I forgot that um, that I had the wrong team. They lost. Yeah, they lost. <laughs> to, so I'm going to go. I'll go Fresno State. Fresno State for Trent Dilfer. For Trent Dilfer. So then... Uh, UCLA is correct. They have three all Troy Aikman. Terry? BYU. BYU has two. Uh, Steve Young and Jim McMahon. Uh, Stanford? Stanford has four. Two for Elway, two for Plunkett. Purdue? Purdue has four. One for Breeze, two for Greasy, one for Dawson. University of Wisconsin, Badgers. Wisconsin has one for Russell Wilson. Northern Iowa. Northern Iowa has one for Kurt Warner. Southern Mississippi. Southern Mississippi, Brett Favre. Washington State. Washington State, Mark Rippon. Miami of Ohio. Miami of Ohio, the two for Big Ben. Uh, Louisiana Tech. Louisiana Tech, four, all Terry Bradshaw. <sighs> uh, um, Navy? Navy has two, both Roger Staubach. Um, oh, where did he... Morehouse State? Say it again. Morehouse State. Uh, that is not the no! name of school. <laughs> that is strike number oh, two. Oh, I know what it is now. <clears throat> Zach? Um, there aren't really many that you really should know. Uh, you could get some, I guess. You could fold if you want to. We have three strikes. Or if you want to keep going. I'm going to fold and okay. hold on. To, so that means I get to hold on to my strikes. <laughs> well, let's do this or do the strikes reset. The red strikes reset, right? I was yeah, I was thinking the strikes reset. Yeah. Oh, oh, then in that case, so, so I, I could just take a stab. Yeah. What you're saying? Oh, okay. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, Gosh, that's so hard. Um, Clemson. Uh, that is not correct. Terry? Grambling. 
Grambling, Doug Williams is correct. I, I, I guess I'll take a strike. I, I don't, you don't want to even say anything? Uh, 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 Arizona State. That is not correct. That's strike number two. How about Terry. how about Morehead State? Morehead State for <laughs> Phil Sims is correct. You are now tied eleven to eleven, and you both have two strikes. Zach. Oh, they'll give me a third strike. I I don't know. I'm I'm out. Okay, Terry. Oh gosh. Um. Where did he? There go? are. Th- Three remaining. There are three remaining, and I know who two of them are, but I don't know where they went. Um, I'm gonna say Virginia. Virginia is not. Where correct. did Brad Johnson go? Brad Johnson went to Florida State. Yeah, uh, and where did mm. Earl Morrill go? Those are the two I still had. That is not one. No, of he them. didn't win a. Uh, we, we have Johnny Unitas oh. went to Louisville, and Jeff Hostetler yeah. went to West West Virginia. I didn't know where Hostetler what about, went. What about Len Dawson? Where did he go? Did we already say yeah, he mentioned it already? Yeah, he was one of the four from Purdue. Oh, okay. All right, so we're tied. It is tied eleven a, to eleven. That was a good one. <laughs> that was a, that was a really good one. <laughs> that was right up my alley too, right there. I know, even though he was smoking you for a bit. Well, I messed up a little bit in there. I shouldn't have said Penn State. That was stupid. All right, so this one is going to be uh, slightly abstract. Okay, so we have... uh, We are looking at the nominated actors and actresses from this year's Oscar nominations. And we are going to name the previous movies that that they were nominated for so 11 of the 20 actors have been nominated in the past and there are 25 movies represented yeah you were right when you said it was abstract okay terry you can go whenever you're ready uh american sniper american sniper is correct bradley cooper la la land Lawland is correct with Emma Stone. Uh, Silver Linings Playbook. Silver Linings Playbook is correct. Bradley Cooper. Moon uh, Moonlight. Moonlight is correct. Mahershala Ali. Um, American Hustle. American Hustle is correct for Amy Adams. Christian Bale and Bradley Cooper. Uh, the Constant Gardener. Constant Gardener is correct for Rachel Vice. Uh, Eastern Promises. Eastern Promises is correct. Vigo. Bridesmaids. Bridesmaids is correct for Melissa McCarthy. Birdman. Birdman is correct for Emma Stone. The Big Chill. The Big Chill is correct for Glenn Close. Albert Knobs. Albert Knobs, Glenn Close. Fatal Attraction. Fatal Attraction for Glenn Close. Junebug. 
Junebug for Amy Adams. Uh, the World According to Garp. Another Glenn Close. Doubt. Doubt, another Amy Adams. Dangerous Liaisons. Another Glenn Close. The Fighter. Another Amy Adams. And Christian Bale. And Christian Bale. You do have three strikes if you need to uh, take a stab. Can you tell us how many are left? <coughs> or is that against the rules? Uh, let's see, we got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Seven left? Yep. Um, Arrival? That is not correct. Yeah, she wasn't nominated for that. Terry? Blanking on some of the names. Actually, eight. There are eight left. Um. Oh, uh, three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. That is correct for Sam Rockwell. Terry takes a two point lead. Zach? Captain Fantastic. That is correct oh, for Vigo. Oh, gosh, yeah. I'm going to take the strike. Okay. Zach. You can tie it up. Um, yeah, I'm running out of them, too. Um, the last five represent... Uh, well, wait. No. One, two, three, four, five. Yeah, they represent three actors. Uh, there's one I really want to say, but I don't think it's right. I'm just going to say it anyway, because who cares? Dangerous... No, I'm sorry. I, said, I already said Dangerous Liaisons. Um, uh, the stupid film that uh, Jeremy Irons won for, Reversal of Fortune. It is not oh, But she was so good in that movie. She should have gotten a nomination. She was. That is two strikes on Zach. Terry. I... Ay, ay, ay. I can't even think of a guess... The score is currently 21 to 20. Terry is leading. Give me another strike. That's my second, right? Yep, that's strike number two. Zach. Well, right now I'm struggling to remember who the nominees are. That's where I'm at, uh, too. I, <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's... you're forgetting... You guys are forgetting one that has multiple. You haven't not mentioned one of his movies. Oh... That sucks. Uh, who are we forgetting? Um, I could say somewhat of a hint. Don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, you don't want the hint. Uh, relevant to this podcast is all. <laughs> relevant to this podcast. Um, yeah, I'm still on the Glenn Close path. I mean, she was nominated for like nine Oscars, right? We, there's got to be movies that we're forgetting about. Yeah, you, yeah, you're forgetting one Glenn Close and one from someone else who had multiple and the entire filmography of one who had three. Um, Five, four, three, two, uh, one. Crimes of the Heart. No. no, she wasn't in that movie. I, I give up. Good job, Terry. <laughs> 
I won, but I don't know anymore. Who did we forget? Who are we forgetting? <clears throat> All right, so you guys forgot the big short, Christian Bale. Oh, gosh, yeah. Oh, God. And the natural from Glenn wow. Close. And the Florida Project, Shadow of Vampire, and Platoon. Willem Dafoe. Willem Dafoe. The Florida Project, which a year ago we could have been talking about maybe once or twice in Vegas. Yeah. All right. Well, I get to pick a movie. I've got some choices to pick between here. I think, I think Zach, you're watching Bottle Shock. Hey, you know, uh, I'm not going to complain about that. Sounds awesome. Okay, you're watching Bottle Shock for next time. Todd, no, I'm not. I'm going to save some stuff for Todd. All right. <laughs> it's time for Quote of the Day to wrap up our podcast. Strawberries. Not the cheese. Womack. With a little sex in it. Quote of the Day. I'm going to go first. And I have a quote here that uh, I'm going to steal Zach's line. I think this really sums up our podcast. And also, I think, sums up most of the films we, uh, we named in our, in our power ranking. This is a quote from uh, an honorable mention on my power ranking. It is the wonderful work of art that is Elizabethtown. Uh, oh. <clears throat> this quote is from Drew Baylor, played by Orlando Bloom. And, and it really does sum up like all these films and, and the podcast. It says, No true fiasco ever began as a quest for mere adequacy. A motto of the British Special Air Force is, Those who risk, win. A single green vine shoot is able to grow through cement. The Pacific Northwestern salmon beats itself bloody in its quest to travel hundreds of miles upstream against the current with a single purpose. Sex, of course. But also, life. And that, that, I mean, that, that sums up the podcast. I mean, and, uh, you, can't, you can't be, uh, you know, have a complete failure unless you actually try to do something. So hopefully we're trying to do something here. Todd, what's your quote? All right, so this comes from a movie I just watched earlier today for the first time. And it's not a great movie. It's called Knock Around Guys. But... <laughs> It, it, it kind of relates to something that Terry was saying earlier about how in Pulp Fiction, Bruce Willis was the biggest star at the time. And so Vin Diesel is in this movie, and it's pretty clear that he is, like, the overwhelming star, but he's the sporting part because he wasn't yet... Uh, he, Fast and Furious hadn't come out yet. And he has this monologue that it was really awesome, and it was about his childhood. And he says, 500 fights. That's the number I figured I... I, I when I was a kid, 500 fights and you could consider yourself a legitimate tough guy. You need them for experience to develop leather skin. So I got started. Of course, of course, along the way, you stop thinking about being tough and all that. It, it stops being the point. You get past the silliness of it all, but then after, you realize that's what you are. And it was just like watching that. I was like, how the hell was he not? like a monster star before this like it, it took one stupid car racing movie to make it happen <laughs> but he was like blowing everyone off the screen including john malkovich and and um and a barry pepper and all these guys that were bigger stars at the time i don't know it stuck with me all right all day did knock around guys get a 60 percent i'm, I'm kind of doubting it. i doubt it <laughs> uh i don't know i don't think so all right, Zach, what's your quote? 
All right. Well, as much as I really wanted to make my quote uh, by uh, LeBron James playing Marcellus Wallace, I couldn't quite do it. I couldn't find the right quote. Uh, I did find a quote from uh, uh, my number four film on my uh, power rankings, which is Man on Fire. And it's the quote I alluded to earlier. And I'm going to recite it as Christopher Walken, who was also in Pulp Fiction, uh, recited it. A man can be an artist in anything, in food, whatever. It depends on how good he is at it. Creasy's art is death. He's about to paint his masterpiece. And uh, that's the way I feel about this podcast, too. We're, we're about to paint our masterpiece, which is uh, death in the form of listening to a two-hour podcast that never ends. <laughs> Except for now. Uh, thank you so much for uh, for listening and uh, and putting up with us throughout uh, this podcast. Uh, again, please subscribe, rate, review. I've heard if you want to actually help us out, you can unsubscribe and resubscribe. That actually counts as more subscriptions toward uh, boosting us up some lists. So if you want to do that, that'd be great. We will catch you uh, fairly shortly with uh, some uh, talk about the Oscars. Until then, have fun watching movies. Despite your crass behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together.